Welcome to The World Awaits. Travel tales to inspire your wanderlust. I'm Kirsty Bedford, journalist, editor and travel writer. And I'm Belinda Jackson, author, travel journalist and columnist. And we're your weekly co-hosts. Welcome back to The World Awaits. How are you all? I've had a great week and one of the highlights had to be attending the Australian Open on Wednesday with you, Kirsty. Oh, well, thank you. Um, ditto. And um, yeah, we were really fortunate to both get the same invite to the ladies' lunch at the Emirates Suite. So um, it's a bit of a money can't buy experience, actually. But uh, travellers who reach Emirates' highest frequent flyer tier can actually attend and, um, and you are rubbing shoulders with sort of celebs. Um, and if you're lucky to, enough to be one of those, one of those people with um, frequent flyers, highest frequent flyers for Emirates, then um, keep it in mind for next year. Uh, because it is so gorgeous. This year, they designed the bar in the entertainment area to replicate the new lounge bar on the A380s. And there were these cute little airline couches and you could sit there and pretend that you were flying and they had, because they had clouds going past the window and stuff like that. And, you know, we... Um, few celebs kicking around. We bumped into horse racing royalty Michelle Payne and Gay Waterhouse. That was really cool, wasn't oh, it? I know. I was so excited about that. Um, and th- yeah, they looked fantastic. It was just it was just fantastic to be in uh, there. And we were fangirling. <laughs> oh my god, absolutely. We certainly did a bit of fangirling. That's for sure. And also special guest Lena, who won the French Open and Australian Open ten years ago. She popped in for a chat, and she was talking about how. When she won the uh, Australian Open a decade ago, how much that it's her favourite event. So it was so great to hear from her, and um, and she did say she's now like really enjoying having a bit of a rest. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness, maintaining that. So in between dining on lobster and drinking Piper Heidsieck, we did actually go out onto the uh, out into the stands. So we watched um, the world number three Daniel Medvedev and Poland's Hubert Hurkacz fight it out on the court. And listening to the crowd, just ooh and ah, you know, there were long rallies, but they were up at the net as well. There was a lot of, it wasn't just that big um, men's game sort of back smashing on the back line stuff. And I thought it was a really skillful game and it was a fabulous one. It was, it was a fabulous so one. Good. It was so good to watch. And I hadn't actually embarrassingly been, um, even though I lived in Melbourne for nearly 20 years, I hadn't actually been to the Australian Open. And so action. How can you, hang on, how can you call yourself a Melbourne? I know, right? I know. Now I'm officially a Melbourneian. Um, and so, yeah, so actually going along and watching it live was just so incredible. It was such a great feeling and everyone was so respectful. I love that. And apart from those, you know, when they had those shots and there was those, ooh, and entire crowds kind of, you know, in it together. It was just, it was so great. And the atmosphere was just fantastic and the weather was great. Um, yeah, it's just a great event. So even if you don't go to that corporate suite, there was also uh, so much else to do. So there was the Aperol Spritz tent and those lounges that are in front of the big screen and the mist sprays. Not that we wanted to mess up out here. Um, and there's a little mini court for the kids to have a go. Um, and just such a great atmosphere. And the weather is always obviously typically pretty good uh, in January. So, um, but yeah, I was a bit slow sort of when we were walking around Bell because um, after um, I had a, I went on a, a, a hike on the weekend at, down at Phillip Island and then I came back and um, and actually that morning before we went, I went I went for a bit of a run with a friend. So I, I actually had really sore legs, but I feel, I feel um, like I'm, I'm not boasting and I, and I shouldn't um, moan because you actually had really genuine reason to have weary legs. 
<laughs> I did get my, yes, the legs were a bit heavy because I just done a, uh, on the weekend, I'd done a two day hike up in Victoria's high country. And we were hiking from Falls Creek to Hotham, which is as gorgeous as it sounds. So the first day was spent crossing plateaus, these, you know, these high alpine meadows. And, oh, it was just beautiful. The second day was the one that sorted the sheep from the mountain goat. <laughs> Amazing. And I saw your photos on Insta and they just look gorgeous. But um, I, I, lo- I love this idea. I love the idea of hiking on, um, you know, when obviously on these seasons when you can't ski. So um, what, what, what sort of distances do you, do you do though? Well, these, there were two days and they were two, I mean, they were pretty big. They were 20 kilometre days each, but the second day was the clincher because we were coming down the sides of the mountains and then climbing back up to Hotham. And, and that was, that was tough. I mean, there was, you know, there's ski runs normally. So um, we dropped into, you know, on the way, we dropped into some of the high countries, the historic mountain huts, which are used as refuges in poor weather, but they're also refuges for some pretty big spiders as well. Um, and then with all the rain we had, the wildflowers were just incredible. And you'd see the wind ruff, ruffling the, the just the um, valleys of, of, dandin- of dandenongs, yellow dandenongs and billy buttons and all of those beautiful purplish alpine grasses. It was it was spectacular, and 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 sort of from a from a broader perspective of scenically, what 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 can you see? You know, I thought that we would be out there in the wild frontiers on our own. It was actually really busy because um, while we're just you know um, you know tromping along and out with our hiking poles and stuff like that, we were passed constantly on the first day by trail runners because there was a trail running event there. So what we would take a day or two to cover, these guys were running. In, in a mid-afternoon. So there were we saw trail runners. There were people on um, horses. Uh, there were a couple of very intrepid mountain bikers as well. And you're looking at the classic Victorian scenery. You know, you're looking at Feathertop and uh, the other peaks, those alpine hearts. And, and snow gums, you know, you'd enter groves of snow gums that are, that are just twisted and wrought by, by the weather up there. Um, things that are often hidden, like if you go that, if you go up there in in the snow season, this is all of this is hidden. Yes, it's a different world. Well, oh, amazing. And I mean, twenty k's to some people might not sound a lot, but when you're hiking or trekking anywhere, like twenty twenty k's is is a huge amount when you're doing those those, those hills, and it takes you know hours. Can I, I say mountains, please? <laughs> The topo, like on the topographical map, but it's lots of little lines and they're very close together. So I have a couple of questions. So one, like how long does it actually take? And do you reckon that, you know, how much training would you need to do it? Well, the training thing is quite interesting. Um, I, I, I may, I had started training when I was down on the peninsula over the summer and I was doing a bit of road biking. I climbed up a seat um, because I was breaking in a new pair of boots as well. So I, um, and then uh, I may have had a slight dancing accident straight to my lower back on the dance floor. So I didn't do as much hills as I should have. And I really felt it on my shins, um, on the climb. I actually coming down was harder than, well, going up was really hard, but in terms of, you know, how it felt on, on the legs, then, uh, you know, that little muscle at the front where your shins are, that was getting a bit of a workout. Um, so yeah, I look. I don't think that you need to be athletic. Like you don't have to have 
you know, run marathons. You don't have to be a trail runner. It is something that somebody with you know, with an active lifestyle yeah. can do. So I think it's it is really accessible, and and the way that I did it too, it was it was more accessible because I I did a self guided hike, but it was supported by a local tour company called Alpine Nature Experiences, and um, and it's operated by uh, by a guy called Jean Francois Rupp who grew up in the French Alps. And he brought all of that alpine experience oh, cool. with him. I know. So, so but like on the first night, we stayed at Harrietville uh, in the hotel motel there, and um, and then we, he drove us up to Falls. So we just carried day packs, and then we walked over the plateaus to Pretty Valley Campground at the end of the day. So we were out walking for about seven, about seven hours. You know, we stopped, had very long, lazy lunches, and we were all taking loads of photos as well. Um, so we were taking a pretty cruisy and we wanted to explore the huts because so many of them, you know, they're over a hundred years old and they've got such great history to them. So we were taking a pretty cruisy and by the time we got to the campground, JF had already set up the campsite. He was pouring g and oh He was searing a lamb shoulder over the open fire. It was, it was pretty special. I love that idea of just getting gourmet food on the go. It's, um... That's so cool. And also having a G&T. Oh, my God. What more could you want? <laughs> well, he said to me, he said to me, I'll see you at about 5.30 with a G&T. And I was like, seriously, it better be a good one. And it was because he sources everything. <laughs> he sources everything from the Alpine region. So, uh, you know, there's things like Bright Brewery and, and, and the different wines and stuff that are all from different parts of um, different areas of the um, Victoria's high country. And... Um, and, you know, the food was astonishing. And it wasn't just the breakfasts and dinners. He also stopped our day packs with these incredible lunches sort of packed in tiffins. So you had a wrap, uh, a fresh salad, which is something I don't think in all my years of hiking, I don't think no. I pulled out a nicely dressed salad with a bit of bocconcini in there. Um, there was also fruit, uh, like we had, you know, sliced kiwi and grapes and things like that. And then a really like, you know, the hikers need for chocolate or for high sugar. So sticky slices and stuff that you just mainlined for extra energy. Oh, they were so good. And, you know, he had prepared for us awesome bags of trail mix that we could take with us, as well as the field notes and the maps. So um, on the second much tougher day where we walked up to Hotham to the ski resort, then he met us there and took us to a, a hidden alpine meadow near the ski resort. And that's where he's got a permanent camp with three absolutely beautiful snow domes. And they're made from these hexagonal glass panels so that you're looking out when you lie in bed, you're looking out over these mountain ridges and the valleys below. And they're just, they're just so beautiful. Oh, it was gorgeous. A, yeah. So this camp had a giant teepee where we all met and that's where the kitchen and the bar is. And then the glass and then these um, snow domes around it. But then, you know, for dinner that night, he was bringing out all of the French classics. You know, he did a duck cassoulet and a, Fabulous beef daub, which um, oh, it was just mouth-wateringly good food, and and because he's worked in the high country in the wine industry, so there was a really intriguing selection of wines and beers, which I have to say did go down a treat after a hot day. On and you didn't and you didn't wake up and find a, a possum clinging to the outside of your dome or anything to keep your apart. <laughs> oh, I have had that on the overland track. <laughs> Just like possums trying to literally pick the lock on your food bag. <laughs> I didn't actually. I didn't have any scary things. You know, we saw um, we saw uh, snakes and yes. uh, you know a couple of times, and they just moved quietly into the 
into the grass and um you know you just you just got to take care and have your eyes open when you're doing that sort of thing so um yeah I think at points there was either the long the grass was pretty long and I think Parks Victoria probably needs to take a little look at that but um I've got to say for the ending of it the best part up in that meadow um was a soak in the open air wood-fired hot tub on the edge of the meadow with a glass oh a glass of cold cold Trebbiano from Campbell's Wines in Rutherglen amazing I know right but, yeah so I mean you had you know you you don't it's on the dock hard work well there was quite a bit of hard work in there but then the rewards <laughs> at the end of the day and for me I think one of the favorite things is just waking up outdoors and um and he had these really cool tents that are actually suspended um he's he tied you tie them to the trees so they're suspended above the ground so well just how do you uh, get into it well you just sit on them because they're not high oh, they're right. only yeah they're only <laughs> they should be hauled up hauled up no, and thrown in there and then no, if you can't get into the bathroom in the night, you're a bit stuck. No, no, no. Well, I never leave a tent at night, not unless there's like a giant possum trying to eat its way in. But um, no, they're only about two feet off the ground. But what it means is that, and he's got this really strong environmental commitment in his business plan. So they're not they're not sitting on the ground because that is really fragile um, territory up there. So so you're not putting a footprint on the on the ground. Yeah, I love that. Um, and also, also, you know, for those that find it really hard sleeping on, on cold ground, and I am not one of these people, I don't get cold, you don't get cold, and it's almost like we had quite high winds, and you kind of just, you know, sway around it. Yeah, you know, like, yeah. You're on a, like you're in a train, travelling in a train yeah, sleeper, right. and a train sleeper or on a, on a boat. So that was part of that um, commitment that he's got to the to preservation of the environment. So, um, you know, these... And you could and the snow domes, you know, they're just incredible. And he has all of this open in summer and winter, so I cannot wait to try the snow domes in winter because there's other things up there like oh, that'd be amazing. dog sledding and skidoo. And even watching the snow falling. Yeah. Like, oh, that would be so gorgeous. Yeah, cannot wait. So you can actually book all of these experiences by visiting JF's website, which is alpinenatureexperiences.com.au. And I'll put the website in the trip in the show notes as well. And on the website, which is theworldawaits.au. You're listening to The World Awaits. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating and review on your favourite podcast platform. This week, I'm chatting with Adventure World Managing Director Neil Rogers, who's setting the benchmark in the industry and ensuring we all travel ethically. He explains how it simply won't support local tour operators who don't stand by its laurels around the treatment of wildlife and a staunch effort to help protect them and ensure the sustainability of travel for future generations. Welcome to the show, Neil. Thanks so much for being on The World Awaits. So let's start by tell us a little bit about your background and how you came into travel. Mm, absolutely. Well, as your listeners get to hear my voice, they'll hear multiple accents coming through, but Originally, I'm from Belfast in Northern Ireland, and as all good Irish, uh, you know, graduates do, you go off and I moved to Boston. I fell in love with a Kiwi, ended up over in Auckland for five years, and now um, have been uh, with Adventure World since that time. So 20 years at Adventure World travel for my sins or for my benefit. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And tell us a bit about um, sort of the ethos of Adventure World and, and, um, and yeah, what, what do you sort of pride yourselves on as as far as um, the travellers that you take and what you offer them? 
Yeah, thanks. Uh, so Adventure World is all travel with purpose. And, you know, travel with purpose, you can take it as two ways, as travel with intent, just to go out there and to get off the beaten path into the unique destinations that we offer. But also with uh, travel with purpose, it is about levels of sustainability. And when I look at it, all of our trips bring that that A word that everybody's talking about now, authentic. So so we like to pride ourselves and say the accommodation that we offer is characteristic of the destination. It's that little bit more boutique, but it all has proven green energy backgrounds behind it. And then for all of our wildlife experiences, they're all observational only, endorsed by World Animal Protection. And with our cultural programs, they're vetted so that you know that the money's going back into the organization. And every trip is custom. So we would chat to you and say, well, what are your interests? Are they culinary or the wildlife? And then we build a unique itinerary with you. And um, we each have teams of destination experts. So I think of us as a mini United Nations. You know, I turn the corner in the office, there's the <laughs> Africa department around the corner. There's Latin America, India, Asia, and they all live and breathe their destination. So it, it's, a, it's a great travel product and a great brand to work for. So are you finding that that's why, um, you know, people are, are coming to you because particularly they... Are they seeking out this, these sort of authentic experiences? And is, is that something that's increasingly growing? And, and is that something people are actually genuinely wanting? You know what? It has been a massive change since that C word, the COVID outbreak. And um, when I look at it before, you know, when you have that kind of light bulb moment, when we were doing these trips anyway, but then to try and bring them to the fore because our clients and customers are actually asking for these experiences you know, well-being, slow travel, mindfulness trips, because, you know, we were locked up for two years over, uh, after COVID. And now it's kind of, well, when I do want to travel, you know, it's a life, right? But I want to go there, be out in the wild or in cities, see them a different way and engage with the local communities and cultures that I'm around it. So it's been a wonderful natural progression. And I think it is reminiscent across our industry uh, today. Yes, and 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 it makes sense, uh, you know, post COVID, that people are sort of looking for something, a, a deeper connection or something a bit different, something that's going to help them personally. So, what what sort of things specifically would you say um, are you know of interest to travellers? And and you talked about sort of people looking for that authentic experience. What what does that actually mean? Yes, authentic means, and I always look it up in the dictionary, so many different ways, but authentic means real. Authentic means honest. Authentic, you know, doesn't mean in a costume. It's, you know, going into that area and seeing firsthand with the local people and the local communities. And it is also ensuring that you're working with uh, partners that have uh, sustainability in mind in terms of purchasing local food for where you're out in restaurants and taking you and allowing you moments in the area to engage with the communities and the wildlife opportunities around you. Um, you know, it, it's not a new world, but it's in essence, it is one now that, um, you know, has come to the fore, but it's it's wonderful to see, you know, and I get so many letters coming back from travelers. And one I actually got last week was uh, a woman who come through, she was in her 60s, she come back from us from the Amazon basin. And she had an incredible trip all through South America with the icon. But as I opened the letter, all I had were these pictures of this fish with teeth. And um, it was the piranhas. And she wrote the letter, said, Neil, to me, the best experience was so showing these pictures of me going piranha fishing in the Amazon basin to tell my grandson. And never have I been so cool as a grandparent to do that experience. So it's just great to see that it's adventure by destination. It's everybody's little different element. And what could be a highlight for somebody is different for somebody else. 
but always in the local communities and environment. Let's um, talk a bit about how do you how do you change uh, and you know when you want to offer these sorts of experiences like things like um, you want to take guess somewhere where say you're not allowed to ride on elephants and we all know and hear of these um, terrible stories still happening and obviously there's elephant rescue lots of elephant rescue centers are particularly in Thailand because of and you hear the you know you you and you go there I was there like a year ago and hearing these awful stories about the way that they're still continually treated how do you change the way that um or influence the way that that you know change so that you can take travelers to these experiences that are genuinely um, and change the actual operators mindsets in regards to ensuring particularly with wildlife that they're treated in a way and that we aren't actually then as travelers asking to do things like ride on elephants a very good question because you know, unfortunately there isn't a set uh, licensing program out there we work with world animal protection to vet all of our programs and my my biggest rule of thumb for people, if you can touch an animal, it's not a good experience. And when you look at it, particularly the elephant uh, programs in Thailand and Southeast Asia, where, you know, even whether people are thinking they're doing good by bathing an element or elephant or feeding an elephant, it is actually not a good practice. But our whole element is teach, don't preach. I inherently think that people want to do the right thing. But as an industry, we need to be quite harsh and shed there is no gray line. Um, so unfortunately, in the likes of Thailand, where you know they were saying that you know it was the the stopping of the logging that was they were rescuing elephants, but the elephant population now in Thailand is increasing substantially thanks to these parks, which is something that we need to stream out. Now, back in 2012, we stopped uh, elephant back riding, and you know when we were hearing it on the phones with our consultants, they were coming to me it's like Neil, these our, our travel agents and our consumers are wanting and uh, to travel on on the backs of elephants and blaming us for not offering these programs to go to Agrifort. I said, you have to stand firm and continue through. Now it's, I'm happy to say that is, you know, completely the norm in our travel industry that people aren't offering elephant back rides. But to your point, you know, last week we had an operator that we had to notify we were no longer selling their programs because they were removing the sloths off the trees in Latin America and Costa Rica and allowing passengers to pat them. And so I said, look, we called our competitors, said, look, this is not happening. We just need to stop now and say, please don't do this because we can no longer support your business. But if you stop this practice, we will return because you don't want to decimate the whole local community and the local environment. But again, with that teach, don't preach methodology, it's kind of like going, okay, now we have changed a matter of fact and um, a behavior. And it's easy to look at all of the negative elements, but you know, I was in India about six months ago and the tiger populations are increasing substantially. But the other element, it used to be all of the local communities were moving to the big cities like Delhi. And that is now starting to stop because there is a great economic benefit for tourism coming into these regional areas. So it's a great cause and effect. And I think, you know, more than bad, we're actually winning the um, the comms in terms of wildlife protection. A long way to go, but certainly we have um, made it much better than it was this time about 10 years ago. And that's such a good point about uh, saying to people, look, we're just not going to bring anyone here. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't do that. So that's, um, it's obviously we're reliant on, on people like Adventure World and to take an actual genuine stand. So, uh, and that's something that's obviously going to be a long-term 
you know, going to take a very long time for us to get to that point where more people are doing what you're doing um, so that we're not continually seeing this, uh, you know, these situations with wildlife. Because even particularly with gorillas, you know, you do see, you're seeing people getting very close to, uh, and photos of people very close to mountain gorillas. Uh, and while, you know, it's you're still going in there. It, let's talk about the, the benefits, though, of actually doing it. So, you know, obviously by people actually going in there and, and assuming that they're just sitting somewhere and allowing those mountain gorillas to move around them rather than the other way around, um, mm -hmm. the benefits of, of taking tourists to these places is that the money from, from you know, going into that is going is making huge um, leaps and bounds in conservation efforts, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, it is going down to the dollar, but not the dollar on the travel file. It's the dollar that's going into those communities. And one of the partnerships we operate with is uh, called Animals Asia. And with Animals Asia, they're in Vietnam, where we're rescuing uh, bears from bile farms. Now, what we're doing with there, you can go into the sanctuary with it, where it's observational only. But with that, they're changing the mentality of the local farmers who are um, housing these bear bile farms. And what Animals Asia does is that they then bring the farmer to see their bears once they've been rehabilitated to remove any element of stress, but give them pride. They go, look, here's my bears. They're great and healthy. So they will then go back to their local communities and say, look, oh, come and see my bears. And it changes the mindset. They're also then training the local people to be veterinarians and care. So it suddenly then changes a whole element where you brought a conservation project. You're bringing travelers in who want to witness it. And then it's benefiting the local community. So it's a whole little ecosystem. And that is replicated out in all regions of the world and to varying degrees. And you're absolutely right with, with Uganda in terms of the gorillas. Uh, and, um, you know, that's a real hard element because, you know, we have to get people in there because that is one of the only local community projects there with the wildlife. And um, even though it is very much closer with the animals, if we did not do that, so simply the gorillas would not be there because they'd be poached for Chinese medicine purposes. Mm -hmm. And to take a step back, tell us a bit about those bear bile farms because people don't may not understand what 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 were they doing? What is the bear? What is the bile that? And how how, how does that work? Yeah. So look, when we were launching in to really come to the fore with travel with purpose, I wanted in each of the regions that we operated in to have a project that we supported. Didn't that put your money where your mouth is? And I had saw a video from with uh, Ricky Gervais online, and it was talking about these bears, uh, cubs that were taken and their mothers were killed at an early age, and they're put into 20 to 30 years in concrete cages where their bile is taken from them on a daily basis for a traditional uh, Chinese medicine. Now, that is proven, um, but there is a medicinal uh, alternative for it. Now, it's illegal to do so in uh, Vietnam. And so what we've been working with, I found this partnership with Animals Asia, Dr. Jill Robinson. And I said, look, how can we help you and educate the market to um, change this practice? And she said, look, Neil, let's do some fundraising together. But it's also educating our travel industry uh, to be aware of this. But, you know, when I launched it, um, we had travel agents and consumers walking out of my presentations. They thought they were coming to see, you know, a, a program with nice destinations to visit and images. And suddenly I thought, have I got this wrong? <laughs> and, you know, so it's 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 then reevaluating the market and kind of go, well, look, your money now goes to these programs. So for the, every Asia booking with Adventure World, 
we donate three hundred dollars uh, to Animals Asia as a fundraising element, and it's 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 been good and bad because you know you I talk about the good, bad, and ugly of sustainable travel. Uh, last week, and I'll kid you not, we had a, a consumer saying, "Hey, can I discount my Vietnam adventure with you by three hundred dollars because I don't want to give to Animals Asia?" And I was thinking, well, look. No, we don't build it into the file. It's just a thing that we do automatically on your behalf. It's a goodwill thing, but you know they just wouldn't believe us. And um, so there's a long way to go, but um, it is all about education and you know facing and challenging uh, wildlife programs that maybe not always the norm. They aren't the warm and fuzzies, but having a good hard conversation about the impact in the areas that you're traveling to and how you can physically make a difference. Mm. And what are some of the other things that travellers can do and how can they go about making sure, you know, that people that that are genuinely wanting to to travel with purpose and really make a difference? Because I do think people genuinely do want to do that, but maybe there's just not the understanding about who's doing it or how to do it. Do you, do you think that's the case? Absolutely. Uh, a lot of people are, you know, scared about asking of sustainability or not sure what to ask and... You know, it's a generational element too. You know, as we see the millennials coming through and even right through now to Gen A, they're uh, very educated and wanting to know that they are traveling with a responsible uh, travel company. Uh, maybe like our bucket list baby boomers who weren't uh, brought up with so many of uh, recycling and sustainability elements in their school ages. They're being educated by the, the younger market or their kids then, hey, we need to do X, Y, and Z. So what I would say is ask the question. Whoever you're booking your travel with, whether it be a travel agent or a provider, ask the question. And if they stumble, then you say, look, where's your wildlife policy? How do I know that the money is going back to the destinations that I'm traveling to? Just simply ask a couple of those questions. Because I say to everybody, there is no bad conversation about sustainability. It will just come naturally through. So those companies that are very much to the fore will have their policies on their websites clearly able and easy to view. And um, so ask the question. And that's as best a good start as any right now in our industry. What are some of the other things or projects that you've got or that some future projects that you'd love to get get involved in? What are some what do you think of the, the key things that we need to look at or trends around this, you know, authentic traveling experiences? areas um you know even outside of wildlife that that maybe we need to look at or that will be a potential focus in um 2024 and beyond mm. um i was at world travel mart recently and they had a lecture on about the power of tranquility and to build in moments of peace in your trip so you know a lot of us when we're looking at building an itinerary out for travel and going to a destination maybe they have a limited time and they want to sit you cram it full of experiences, but you know, there's the time to leave it with mindfulness, well-being, and the movement of slow travel is you're actually needing this trip for your health, your well-being. So please ensure that you're building moments to look at that vista over the mountains, to take time to put your fingers and toes into the brook or stream that's going past you. Don't move past those simple pleasures of the destination. Take off your headphones, put down the camera, be in the moment and, you know, just engage and have a conversation when you're on local transport, because that is rewarding body, mind, soul, not just for you, but for everybody around you. 
And there's certainly nothing like, um, you know, getting insights and talking to people on the ground and meeting locals. That's something that's growing increasingly, isn't it? That sort of community immersion um, involvement. And not only the benefits that you're putting money back into the local community, but you get to learn, uh, you know, people want are really interested, aren't they, in increasingly in learning about new cultures. That's it. I think people are continuous learners. I know we have a lot of partnerships with museums and other attractions that we want people to go to when they're in destination because that's another thing that people tend to bypass, especially in our, our more kind of youth segments. They're out wanting to travel and see the area, but take time to see the wonderful museums and exhibitions that are in each of the local areas, particularly the cities. But also, you know, what we found, I was in Canada recently and I met with the Indigenous Travel Association and their council there. And we were talking about how they do welcome to country in their uh, native um, uh, languages. And it's a beautiful way. They, they welcome you with the hands in and out, which is your spirit coming into the regions of Canada. And as you leave, it's welcomed out again. Um, so again, it's, it's asking the questions of your provider. You know, what is the, the correct uh, protocols to do? We will happily do it because you don't want to, to ascend in any of these regions that you're going to. But again, the locals are more than happy to also ask and, you know, ask the question, hi, how do you do this? Would you like, could I take a photograph and just the general rules of etiquette wherever you travel? So do you think um, there's very real hope, you know, in the future for, for, for travellers to make a significant difference in, in, re in regards to, uh, you know, sustainable communities and um, wildlife? Absolutely. And it's great to see that it is starting to come into the norm. And it is uh, peer pressure, it is people power, it's asking for those experiences. But at the end of the day, you know, some people are put off by the word sustainability and it's, oh, is this a scary word for them? Am I going to be building a well? Is this not going to be an enjoyable trip? But these are mm -hmm. beautiful, enriching experiences in all of these destinations. So it actually gives you a greater experience while you're on your holiday. And, um, you know, it, it, it buoys me to be able to hand our wildlife policies to anybody in the market and say, let's all be better together. And to be honest, as a travel community, we're all wanting to move into this direction, which is great to see. So don't be scared of that word sustainability. <laughs> mm, yes, embrace it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, look, we end all of our interviews on this question. Um, what's the most bizarre thing that's happened to you on your travels? Well, you know, um, the most bizarre element has been since I've been sporting uh, a mo uh, since last November. Um, I have, and you'll have to look at the image profile for this to see if you agree. Um, I do get asked a lot, do I? Uh, uh, do you know who you look like? Freddie Mercury. And when I was in India, I know, I know. Please, please do take time to look at this image. But um, I was in a restaurant and this couple came up like, oh, please sign, please sign, Mr. Mercury. And I was like, no, no, no. I don't have the heart to tell these people that the man has been dead for nearly 20 years. <laughs> and they were, uh, but no, they meant Rami Malik, the guy that had, you know, covered him in the, so uh, <laughs> yeah. they weren't giving up for an answer. So I just signed it. it was Rami. <laughs> <Off> they went. <laughs> so that's bizarre, but oh, not that's hilarious. <laughs> A second job, maybe. Nice. There you go. <laughs> Can't sing like him, but you know. <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. Um, oh, look, it's so great. Thank you so much. I could talk about this for hours. But, um, yeah, thanks for your insights. It's um, fantastic to know what travellers can do and, and how we can make change. Thanks all for listening. And with so much greenwashing out there, it's great to hear how Adventure World, led by Neil, 
is genuinely taking steps in the area of conservation and wildlife, walking the walk instead of just talking the talk, and in the process, helping entire communities. To learn more, go to adventureworld.com.au. Our tip this week is an annual leave hack revealing how you can get the most out of your holiday leave. So Virgin Australia has released a guide for maximising the holidays to double your days off. And I completely love this. Oh my God, who doesn't love that? So the key dates for the remainder of the year are Easter, where if you go on leave on, get your calendars out people, Thursday the 28th of March and return on Sunday the 7th of April, you get a 10 day break with only four days annual leave. Amazing. Amazing. And on the Anzac Day weekend in April, if you start your break on Wednesday the 24th of April and return on Sunday the 5th of May, that's an 11-day break but taking only six days annual leave. And then December, of course. So if you depart on the evening of Friday the 20th of December, just take those extra few days off um, off work, um, and return on Thursday the 2nd of January, then boom, 12-day holiday with only five days annual leave. So where are we going to go next, Kirsty? Virgin suggests Bali or the Great Barrier Reef in March, but I don't know, maybe Bali's better in April when it's starting to get cool here in Melbourne. Yeah, so if you're still clinging to summer, you know, get the last of those warm days. But the Great Barrier Reef would be perfect as it's off-season, so you won't be paying the higher prices you get in the peak season, like in Christmas. Um, And the weather's always great. Yes. Mostly. Yes, mostly. (laughs) April's a really good suggestion too. So Virgin recommends heading to Tokyo's Cherry Blossom Festival. Oh my God, Japan and spring or autumn just can't be better. The colours are so pretty. I was actually in Shikoku Island um, in autumn and those Japanese maple trees, oh my God, they just that just stay with me forever. They have stunning colours, just the vibrant reds are just remarkable. So I need to do Cherry Blossom, so that's not a bad idea. Oh, that sounds gorgeous. Well, in December they also su- suggest the Gold Coast or Vanuatu. Um, I'm not so sure about this. I reckon head up to the snow then. But, uh, you know, because Japan's ski season is in full swing then. Or the Gold Coast hinterland would be gorgeous because the weather's usually good up in Queensland despite the odd tropical downpour Mm. or two. Yes. Um, Yeah, I think Japan's a great suggestion for December too. Um, And it's such a hot destination right now. And for reason, because, you know, food, scenery, gorgeous people, um, it doesn't even matter what time of the year you go. There's always something. But so, you know, maybe we need to look at doing a podcast in Japan, Bal. Anyone? I'm heading over there. Japan's on my list for this year. <laughs> Let's do it. Next week, we are celebrating the Lunar New Year by chatting to Australian Chinese artist Chris Chun, who grew up here in Melbourne but has spent a life travelling and working around Asia. So he's going to tell us about um, the upcoming Year of the Dragon and how you can get involved in the rich traditions of celebration, which generally run for a month, and which makes it a really great time to visit Asia. So if you're in such countries as China, Thailand, Vietnam, you know, those celebrations go on for for weeks and it's just full of colour and so full of life. You won't want to miss that one. Yeah, I can't wait to hear about that. 
And if you'd like to help support our production costs, you can buy us a coffee at coffee.com slash the world awaits. That's K-O hyphen F-I dot com slash the world awaits. So we can continue to bring you inspirational travel interviews with the world's best. That's a wrap for The World Awaits this week. Click to subscribe anywhere you listen to your favourite pods. And where can people find you, Kirsty? I'm at Kirsty Writes on Instagram. That's K-I-R-S-T-I-E Writes, W-R-I-T-E-S. And where can people find you, Belle? You can find me at globalsalsa.com or on Insta at global underscore salsa. Thanks for listening. See you next week.